Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Let's just pray. Lord, we echo the word of the psalmist that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And we come into your presence as your children. We come into your presence as those who are dependent upon you and those, Lord, who are indebted to you for all that we have and all that we are. And so we thank you, Lord, for your love and we thank you for this book, your word, and we pray that it might speak not only to our minds but to our hearts. Amen. <clears throat> One of my favourite psalms is Psalm 133. It has that lovely verse, lovely uh, first verse that says, How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. Peace is a lovely thing. Harmony is a lovely thing. And the scripture has a great deal to say about peace, peace in our hearts, peace with God, peace with each other. Unity. But in the Corinthian church, it was not so. We saw in chapters 1 and 2, that one of the threads that are going through that chapter and continue in this chapter, in chapter 3, is that of division, disharmony. Quarrelling. Jealousy. Strife. That's the church. <laughs> but we don't have to look to Corinth, do we? We can look to our own place here. Let's not be deceived. <clears throat> there can and often is division. There can be and often is quarrelling. There can be and often is strife and jealousy, dare I say. We don't have to look to the church here. We can look to our own homes, to our own hearts. I don't know how many times my wife, bless her, <laughs> reminded us of that verse that says... A harsh word stirs up anger. But how else does it go? <laughs> a quiet, a soft answer. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's the one. So, this chapter we're going to look at is going to talk about division and disunity. But it's going to talk about something more. And wouldn't you love to know that there is an answer? Wouldn't you love to know that God 
has made a way for us to be united, to be one, to be in harmony, to relate as he intended to relate. Wouldn't you like that? Isn't it good and pleasant for us to dwell together in unity? I'm sure we all feel that way. I don't know. I'm sure, actually, you have. <clears throat> but when I think of myself, I know that the, the stirring and the discomfort <laughs> and the troubled soul that can come because of contention. I'm sure we've all experienced that. The scripture would tell us these things ought not to be so. But it's not only important to us. It was important to the Lord. In his final prayer before Gethsemane, the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17, he said this. This is what he prayed. He could have prayed many things. And there's a few things he prayed in that chapter that are very telling. But in particular, he prayed this. He said, I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, it includes the Corinthians, it includes us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus prayed that to his Father. Jesus prayed that we might be one even as he is one with the Father. That's his intention. That's his purpose. And he will make it so. This is his blessing. And when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it, it reminds us again of some of the divisions that were there, that were discussed in the first two chapters. But he then reminds us about the solution to those divisions. And let me put you in on a secret. The solution is a person. See, this is not magic. This is not a secret. If we want to know how we're to relate as brethren, if we want to not only know how, but if we want to do so, we can only do so in Christ. Let me say again, we can only do so in Christ. We all know that. We all know that, but we can only do so in Christ. Not in Paul, not in Apollos, not in Cephas, not in Luke, not in Rob or me. We can only do so in Christ. And we're going to see how that evolves in this chapter. But God wants us to understand not only with our minds the truth 
about unity and harmony. But he wants us to, to, for that truth to permeate our heads and our hearts. That's why it's here. We start off in chapter 3, in verse 1. He says, but, <laughs> but, all right, brothers, this first few verses, he's going back to the end of chapter 2, where he's talked about spiritual-mindedness, if you like, and human-mindedness. There's a way of thinking about things that is a human perspective. And there's a way of thinking about things that is a God's perspective. In fact, he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, he's not able to understand. There's a natural man, the human plane, there's a spiritual man, God's plane. There's two ways of looking at things. And he goes back and, and to, to what he'd just been saying. He continues in verse 1. He says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh. The human plane is the plane of flesh. Now, we're not talking about just the body part here. Flesh, as it's used here, is really... Um, man without God. It's man independent of God. It's us, each of us, and our natural inclinations. And you say, well, why are my natural inclinations so bad? I'm glad you asked. Because... Adam sinned, he disobeyed God. And as a result of that, there was what we call the fall. We were created in the image of God. We're no longer presenting that image as we ought. And so we talk about ourselves as fallen creatures, as failed men and women. As sinners, as the scripture puts it. And the flesh is man in his natural state. And the spirit is man in his God state, if you like. When we're spiritually minded, we're thinking on God's plane. When we're in the flesh, when we're naturally minded, we're thinking on man's plane. Now, this is, this is the heart, if you like, of what goes on subsequently. Because Paul is telling us here that there's a problem, and the problem is really rooted in the fact that you are seeing things from the wrong perspective. You're thinking as mere humans, what it says. He says, for you are still 
of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, in a natural way? See, it equates living in the flesh with the natural, with a human perspective. How did they get that way? See, Paul's saying here, I, I've, I've got to treat you like infants in Christ. You're not mature. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. Now, when a baby is born... That one's pretty close, a little bit older. Babies need milk. They're immature. Now, that's not a problem. <laughs> we all start off immature. It just means we haven't matured. And when he started with the Corinthians, when they came to know Christ, they were immature. They were like babies. And he fed them milk. But there's a problem. If this little fella in 10 or 20 years is still just drinking milk, you've got a problem. Because whilst we start off immature and we need the milk of the word, we need to grow. We need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And how does that happen? It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, chapter 5, sorry, verse 11, it, it says this, You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Why was it? that they didn't have a maturity to these people that were writing to in Hebrews because they did not have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And they did not know what God says. They didn't know the word of God. They didn't feed on this. Do you remember how Jesus described the word of God in temptation on the mount? <laughs> he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why were some of the Corinthians immature? Why were they still needing the milk? Because they hadn't been feeding on the word of God. That's simple. If as a child you don't feed, you don't grow. And as a child, as a Christian, a new Christian, if you don't feed on the word 
you don't grow. And evidently, there were these people in the Corinthian church that hadn't been feeding on the word of God. And one of the results of that was that they were exhibiting a a behaviour that was divisive and troublesome and disunifying and in disharmony. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? Now, he's just reiterating what he had said in chapter 1, where he said um, he was concerned that there were those that were taking sides, that were following men, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, and And Paul asks some of these rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? See, this is thinking in a human way. Why were they thinking this way? Because they hadn't grown and they hadn't fed on the word of God. And remember, feeding on the Word of God is not just about knowing it. It's about learning to practice it. Now, I know we all don't do this the way we should. And sometimes we have problem with our digestion or indigestion on the feeding. But it doesn't mean we deal with that by stopping. Because I don't understand some of the scriptures, it doesn't mean I don't read them anymore or I don't meditate on them anymore or I don't reflect upon them anymore. Because I'm not as bright as some other person or as analytical as somebody else, it doesn't mean I don't make them my daily food because it's more than what is in the mind, it's what's in the heart. It's Christ transforming our lives through his word. And because they had been neglecting this, because they were still living on the natural plane, because they were still needing milk, there were things that were coming out. There was jealousy and quarrelling. There was this sectarianism. So how do we deal with that? Do we go about just stopping it everywhere? <laughs> how, we, how do we deal with it in the home? By the way, if you feel that this is not an actual state, just watch little children in the home. Just see how much unity and harmony there can be with siblings. We know there's not. But there's a wonderful thing here. As we go through this chapter, there's a number of things now that God reveals to us 
that helps turn our thinking into a way that can bring about that unity and that harmony. And it's only through Christ. The first thing he talks about, if you like, uh, is from verses 5 to 9. He's addressing this question about following Paul, following Apollos. He's addressing the issue of division. And the first thing he wants us to recognise in these verses, which I will read, is that God is the builder. Not Paul, not Apollos, not you, not me. Uh, this, is, this is tremendous. This takes a weight off, by the way. I have spoken to certain people that get worried about things. Right. If I start to see that God is the builder, that brings a tremendous release. He says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants, he who waters are one, and each will receive the wages according to his labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. What's it saying? We can participate with God in his work. He's not participating with us. We're participating with him. What is he saying? Why is he saying this? He's saying this is because certain people had elevated, had exalted Paul and Apollos and others, which we are prone to do. Certain people were perhaps holding them in awe which we can be prone to do. Now, let me just say there is nothing wrong with giving due honour or honour where it's due. There is nothing wrong with respecting our leaders. There is nothing wrong with learning, as the scripture says we should, from the examples of men and women of faith both through the scriptures and through history and in this church. But if we stay in the natural plane, our inclination, our inclination will always be towards idolatry and towards worship of someone else other than God. And that's what was happening. Paul was a man who set a great example for these Christians. He was a man to be admired, as was Apollos, as was Cephas. But they were not sinless. And they were not the one that caused the growth. And so it is with us. There are many here that may plant, there are many here that may water, but it's God who brings about the growth. 
It's God's power at work. The, the implications are, are manifold. One of the things it does for us is we recognise that we need to pray. Because if anything is going to be done in our hearts, if we're going to become what God wants us to be, if we're going to become what even we would like to be, then God has to do it. It says that, doesn't it? It says God causes the growth. It says whatever else I may do or you may do in this place or in the church or in the uh, family, whatever else, except the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain that build it. Except the Lord guards the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. It's not saying, except the Lord builds the house, then maybe some of the work will be okay. We'll make some progress with our Tower of Babel. No. Alison and I took that to heart in our home. Now, there's lots of imperfect things about our home, I can tell you. But we, we believe, we believe that except the Lord builds the house, then our labour is in vain. A lot of, lot of our labour wasn't all that great. But all of it is futile unless God is... We're the labourers. Paul and Apollos here were the labourers. God was the builder. God was the power. I love Psalm 71, 18. It says, um, even to old age and grey hairs, do not forsake me, O God, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those that come. It's God's purpose for me. Even though I'm getting old and I'm getting grey hairs. Until I proclaim what? His might to another generation. His power to all those that come. Why? Because it's only God that brings about the growth. Dear Corinthians, how foolish it is to think that Paul is something, that Apollos is something. How foolish to hang your hat on this person over here with his eloquence or his gifts or her abilities. What a foolish thing to do and yet we're prone to do it, aren't we? We are prone to do it. And so he wants us to look at this and look at that phrase that God gives the growth and to believe it, that God gives the growth. Paul wrote elsewhere in, in Corinthians, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything 
as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. We are Christians. We are not Paulians or Apollosians or Cephasians. We are Christians. The second thing he goes on to say, not only does God give the growth, he's the power, but we see that he is the foundation. Christ is the foundation of the work. We read in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to, the, to me, he's saying he's like a skilled master builder. I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid. What's the foundation? Paul? Is it Apollos? No, the foundation which is Christ. Not only does God cause the growth, the foundation of the work is and has to be Christ himself. Now, he talked about this in different words in the first two chapters when he was talking about um, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Um, he's talking about Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. He's the foundation. What he accomplished on the cross is what purchased redemption. It brought us back to God. And the building, as we see, we'll see here, is God's work and purpose in restoring a new body of people who reflect the image of God as he intended at the beginning. God created man in his own image to reflect the glory of God, to be like God, not in his divine attributes, but to reflect the character and the love of God. And now he's building, rebuilding, if you like, He's restoring. But the foundation has to be Christ. You know what happens when you get the foundation wrong? Very hard to fix. I've been looking at, at some houses for one of, our, one of our children and looking to buy a slightly bigger house. And um, it's very easy to look at the presentation, isn't it? You know, the paint work looks really good. I love the entrance, garden's beautiful, all of these things. Do not be deceived, my brethren. <laughs> Steve knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> the engineers amongst us will be looking at, I wonder how structurally sound this building is. I wonder if that retaining wall is done as the way it should have been. I wonder what's going to happen with all the, when the waters come down this roadway and that, whether they're actually going to have a path to dissipate properly. I wonder what the drainage is like. There are all these foundational elements, but particularly the building, 
that if you don't get it right, you can paint as much as you like. <laughs> it's very hard to correct. And that's, that's what he's doing here, purposely. He, he's giving a picture of the body, which we'll see what that is in a moment, but he's, he's giving a picture of the body as a building, as a structure. And you have to have the foundation right. This is not complicated. What, who's the foundation? The foundation is Jesus Christ. See, what he's doing, he's answering, if you like, the foolishness in the Corinthian thinking in trying to elevate men. And by the way, it was not just elevating Paul and Apollos, where they should not be. See, it talks about, in the beginning of chapter 3, the jealousy, the envy, they're elevating themselves too. So when we elevate men and women, we may be elevating other people, but we may be elevating ourselves. And he's, this is all going on in the body, among some. And he's saying, this really is foolish, isn't it, when you think about it? Because first of all, God is the one who gives the growth. You people can't do anything. And the foundation is Jesus Christ. It's not you. I know that's a, it's a millennial phrase, isn't it? It's not about you or something like that. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And, you know, of course, we, we participate in his work. We can... Build. It says here we, uh, our building, if you like, is likened to either gold or silver or precious stones, wood, maybe hay or straw. We're actually participating in God's work. Some of us not really participating. We've got our own agendas. That's like the wood, hay and the stubble. It doesn't contribute to the purpose of God. It's going to be burnt. There's those who build in the gold, the silver. I, I ask myself the question about what am I building? I'm sure there's lots of wood, hay and stubble. But by the grace of God, we can build the gold, the silver, the precious stones. But that is only when we're building on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. That is only when it's Christ-centric. That is only when we're saying, I am of Christ. Only then can we build in that way. And there's, there's the, I guess, the, the little thought there at the end, in case people are feeling that um, uh, my salvation is going to rest on how well I build. He does say in uh, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's not talking about our salvation. If our salvation 
if our eternal hope was dependent on how well we built, I think most of us would be in some trouble. We know that we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's God who caused the growth and continues to cause the growth. Christ is the foundation of that body because he's purchased it with his own blood. But Paul is saying here that knowing that, we still have an accountability to him. We have a responsibility to use the resources that we have, the wherewithal that we have to build. Not our buildings, but to build according to the purposes of God. So, you Corinthians, it's foolish to think that Paul and Apollos and even yourselves or anything because God alone is the one who's the power. God alone is the one who causes the growth. It's, it's foolish to think that you are anything because Christ is the foundation. He's, he's the preeminent one. In Colossians 1.18 it says, He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the foundation and he's preeminent. Now someone once told me that for some people Christ is present. And every believer has him living in his heart. For others, Christ is prominent. Starts to display his life. But for a few, Christ is pre-eminent. That's what it's saying in Colossians 1.18. Not that he would be present, not that he might be prominent, but that in everything he might be preeminent. The other thing that Paul wants us to recognise is that the body of Christ, the temple of God, is what he's building here. So we read in verse 16, Know you not that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. That's in you, plural, in the body. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Uh, one way to build the wood, hay and stubble is to do that which is destructive to the temple. Now what's the temple? The temple is his body. There are a number of metaphors that are used to describe the church. There's a metaphor of the building here. There is also the metaphor of the body of Christ. And we are all members of the body. He's the head. It doesn't make sense 
to elevate people or elevate myself or exalt myself because not only God is um, the one who gives the growth, he's the power, not only is Christ the foundation, but it's his work and building and his purpose that needs to be fulfilled. He wants to make, I mentioned it before, he wants to build us as Christ-like building blocks in that temple, which the Spirit of God indwells. And that can only happen as he brings about the growth. He's committed to this. This is his explicit purpose. It tells us that he, his purpose in, in Romans chapter 8 and 28 and 29, it tells us that he is working to conform us to the image of his son, to restore the image of God in his people. The final thing, or two things really, but the final thing in verse 16 that he wants us to recognise, where he says, do you not know that you are God's... Sorry, verse 18. Let no one deceive you, himself, sorry, and you. <laughs> if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may, be, may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. He's talked about living in a human plane. He's talked about the wisdom of the world in chapter 2. And here, if you like, he recapitulates. And he says, when you talk about, I am a Paul, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Apollos, what you're doing is not only not recognising God as the, the, the one who brings the growth and Christ as the foundation and the body, his body as his work, but you're also not recognising that man's thinking is foolishness. It's possible to have wisdom in the world and this wisdom without God is foolishness. When um, Romans describes the decline of man beginning with his unthankfulness, beginning with his unthankfulness, it says that they professed themselves to be wise but they became fools. Our wisdom is limited wisdom. We just don't know. We just don't know. And God's saying, look, let no one deceive himself if anyone thinks he's wise. If any of you think you can figure it out or if you think that this exalting of people and yourself is a, is a good thing, if anyone thinks that 
he or she can really figure it out, then you're deceiving yourself because wisdom belongs to God. Interestingly, in describing Jesus Christ, it tells us that in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, in Christ. He finishes off. As I do. So let no one boast in men. He's talked about all these things. But right from the beginning in, in chapter 1, he started this theme of, of boasting in men and then the jealousy which is boasting in yourself and he summarises it here. He says, recognising that God causes the growth, recognising that Christ is a foundation, recognising that he's building something wonderful a set of Christ-like building blocks, a body for his glory, recognising that you don't have the wisdom and the answers, that your thinking and my thinking can be foolish, recognising all of that, it says, so, let me finish off, so, let no one boast in men. What brings about division and disunity and disharmony when we start to boast in men, including ourselves? And there's every reason why it doesn't make sense to do so. And it's every re there's every reason why we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt us in due time. And he says, he, he finishes off this chapter, he says, you want to know what a ridiculous thing it is? Because everything you have, all that you are, your eternity, everything you have in Christ. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life, or death, or present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Everything we are and everything we have, we have in Christ. And we have an eternal hope. Even in the midst of suffering and difficulty today. And so knowing these things, we've got no reason to boast in people. We've got no reason to boast in ourselves. We boast in the cross and in Christ himself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And Lord, the, the certainty and the assurance that we can have because of what you've done for us. And teach us to have things in their right perspective and to recognise you as the God who is all-powerful, who causes the growth, as Christ is the foundation, to recognise the building that you're building and the wisdom of God in all of this. And so we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.